1 Samuel chapter 7. I'm going to jump right into it because i got a lot of ground to cover. We left off with the Philistines uh, returning the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. Basically what happened was the Philistines uh, conquered Israel in battle. And as they conquered them, what they did is they took the Ark of the Covenant, which was really the, the earthly embodiment of their God, uh, the, and, and, and all. And basically what they did is they took this, the centerpiece of their worship, and they brought it and they stuck it in the temple of their God. Their, their God being the God Dagon, <clears throat> his temple being uh, in the city of Ashdod. And so these Philistines took this ark, went to the city of Ashdod, set the Ark of the Covenant there. And the attitude was, hey, this is a trophy for you, Dagon. And obviously, you're a bigger, badder God than the, than the Israelites' God because we whooped them and all. And so here you go. And... Their ark now is going to bow down to you. Uh, but uh, rather than that happening, it didn't quite work out as they planned. And rather than bowing down to Dagon, what happened was Dagon bowed down to the ark of God and uh, was in fact broken before God. And uh, the, the people of every city on top of that, it wasn't just limited to Dagon bowing down to the ark of God, but on top of that, what happened was that God's hand was very heavy on the Philistines. And so everywhere where the ark of God was brought, the people were struck with disease and with tumors. And and so pretty soon the ark of God didn't become so much of a trophy to the Philistines as it was, well, let's just get rid of this thing. And so they're hot potatoing this thing. It's going from city to city. And everybody's like, no, don't send it here kind of deal. And so finally, they decide, man, we need to get rid of this thing. They're desperate. It's been said people either change by inspiration or desperation, and here they're desperate to get rid of these things. And in, this de- in their desperation, they asked two questions. First question was, <clears throat> what shall we do with the ark of God? And the second question is, you know, how do we send it to its place? Now, when they ask the question, what do we do with the ark of God, it's really a bigger question because the ark of God represents the presence of God. And so really what their question is, is what do we do with the presence of God? This is a big question for us to consider, and what we looked at last week was that the inevitable result, if we decide to live a life apart from God, separated from God, in sin and rebellion, the inevitable result of our sin and of our rebellion is that we, sooner or later, are going to suffer consequences, and those consequences are going to cause us to come face to face with God. We're going to have to deal with them. We're going to have to answer the question, what am I going to do with the presence of God? And of course, the, the hope from God's perspective is that if, if you're stupid enough to, to forsake him and to, to, to battle against him, which all of us in our testimonies have shining moments, <laughs> I say that facetiously, when, when we have forsaken him, when we've gone against him, when we've rejected him, and God... You know, his hope is that, well, there ain't no teacher like the burnt finger, you know, and that we will go down that path of, of, of disobedience, and it'll bring us to the end of ourselves, and we'll come back to God. Um, Paul talked about this to the Corinthians. He, he, he was writing them a, a letter, and he basically said, look, I, I become aware you got some guy there in your church, and, uh, and he's in sin, and you guys aren't doing anything about it, and it's this horrible sin, and you ought to be repenting and lamenting over what this guy is doing. Instead, you know, you're bragging about how tolerant you are, and, and he says, you guys should, you should be ashamed, and here's what you ought to do with the guy, you ought to put him out of your church. Now, Paul didn't say to put him out of the church because he didn't care about him, because he didn't love him. He didn't say, you know, put him out of the church because, you know, hey, you need, you need to go to hell, you know, and that, that's the way you're living. That wasn't his attitude. His attitude was, hey, you know what? You want to run with Satan? Go run with Satan, and hopefully you'll hit something really hard and come to the realization, I need God. And so that's, that's the hope. The hope is, is that when we're being disobedient to God, that the sin and the consequences are going to be bringing us to a place where we wake up. Paul certainly knew that experience from his, from his own life. I mean, in Acts chapter 9, Paul was, was at the time going by the name of Saul. He was not converted to a follower of Jesus Christ. As a matter of fact, he hated Christians. He was killing them, having them thrown in prison. And he was actually on the road to Damascus to imprison and to kill more Christians. God met him there. And, he, and, and Paul comes face to face in the midst of running headlong to his sin. He comes face to face with God the way we all so often do. 
And Paul had to answer the same question, what am I going to do with the presence of God? And so his question was, who are you, Lord? Am I, am, I, am I in your presence? Is this what's going on here? And Jesus is like, yep, it's me. And, and it's tough for you to kick against the goads, isn't it? And, and so Paul gets to the place where he asks the same question, what am I going to do with the presence of God? Now, unlike the Philistines, because they asked the question, gee whiz, what, God's hand is heavy upon us, and what do we do with this thing? What do we do with the presence of God? That was the question they asked, and, and the, the answer to that question for them was, we get rid of him. That's what we do. Paul, he asked the question, who are you, God? God says, yep, it's me. He asked a very different second question. His answer is, what do you want me to do? That's the right question, by the way. If you're here today and if you're living a life of sin and rebellion against God, and, and you're wrestling with the question of, of what do I do with the presence of God, well, hey, listen, here's the thing you do. You say, God, what do you want me to do? You surrender your life to the Lord. Well, the Philistines didn't do that. All they were interested in is, hey, we're, we're dealing with consequences, and we want to get rid of those consequences. And so I'm dealing with the presence of God. And my answer is, how do I get rid of it? <clears throat> well, today, what we're going to find with the Israelites is that they're dealing with the exact same thing. Because what happened is, if you'll remember, if you were with us last week, the, the Philistines, they brought the Ark of the Covenant back. And, and so they're like, you know, good, we're done with it. And we're out. Now consequences are, are, are done with because we dealt with the presence of God. And we, our answer was return to sender kind of thing. Now we're going to find out that doesn't go so well for them because, you know, you can be as sorry as the day is long about, you know, coming against the Lord and, and uh, against offending the Lord. You can, be, you, you can be sorry for that. But if you don't repent from that, you're still going to suffer, you know, profound consequences. And this is what the Philistines have yet to find out. They thought they avoided all the immediate consequences by getting rid of God. They're going to find out that, that not by a long shot has their problem been solved. The Israelites, they now take the Ark of the Covenant. It's been brought back to them. And, and, and a group of them decide that, that they're going to take the lid off of the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the lid on the Ark of the Covenant is the, is the mercy seat of God. And basically, the Ark's contents are the, the two stone tablets of the law, the Ten Commandments. God's righteous standard. And, and so in coming to God's righteous standard, the Bible makes it clear that, that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. So if you come to God and your attitude is, hey God, I want to come to you on my own terms. I'm a good guy. I haven't killed anyone, you know, and I'm, I don't cheat on my taxes. I don't cheat on my wife. I think I'm, I think I'm a pretty good guy. And so, you know, I'm banking on the fact that if my good works outweigh my bad works, when I come to face God, then, you know, hey, God will see that I'm no Charles Manson and, and he'll let me in. That's a profound mistake. And this is these Israelites, what they did is they came to the ark of God and there in the ark, inside the ark is the God's righteous standard. And what they did is they removed the lid. They removed the mercy seat. And so they came straight to God, really in much the same way. They came right to his righteous standard. Well, no, no flesh can glory in his presence. There's no one that can come before God straight away, just you and God, and live, the Bible says. So what's our hope? Well, our hope is to come to God through Jesus Christ. He is the one who died on the cross for our sin in our place. It's when we place our faith and our hope and our trust in him that we can come to God because God no longer looks directly at us, no longer deals directly with us, but he looks at us through Jesus Christ. And so it, all Jesus' righteousness is imputed to us. God sees us as holy, as pure, and as righteous. None of the things we are in and of ourselves, but God sees us that way through Jesus Christ. Well, the Israelites didn't do that. When they came to God and they came to his ark and they tried to bypass the mercy seat... Well, God struck them dead. And, and, and so in striking them dead, they asked actually the exact same question that the Philistines ask. They're like, what can we do to get rid of this thing? Well, here's what they said. We'll pick it up in, in chapter 6, beginning in verse 20. Verse 19, God has judged them. He's killed those that came directly to him on their own standard, bypassing the mercy seat. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 6, verse 20, it says, And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? The answer, ain't nobody able to stand before him in and of themselves. So what's their conclusion? And to whom shall, we, uh, shall it go up from us? You get that? That's the same questions as the Philistines. Like, what do we do with the, with the ark of God, of God? What do we do with the presence of God? And how can we get rid of it? And this is what the same guys, the, the, the Israelites ask. Which, by the way, and this is just an aside. I don't have time to develop this thought. But our sin looks so ugly on other people, doesn't it? I mean, because, you know, you, you sit here and you look and you see the Philistines and the Israelites might well go, oh, well, look, you, look at you. You know, you, you come to face, face to face with God and, and the, the right obvious answer is for you to surrender to God, but rather than, than receive the Lord and surrender to Him, you reject the Lord. Uh, and, and yet, what do they do? They do the exact same thing. They do the exact same thing. And so they ask this question, to whom shall it go up from us? How do we get rid of it? Verse 21, and so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kirjath-Jerim, saying, the Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up with you. In other words, now they're hot potatoing it. We don't want this thing around. You guys come get it. Come down, take this thing up with you. And then, chapter 7, verse 1, the men of Kirjath-Jerim came, and they took the ark of the Lord, and they brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar his son, to keep the ark of the Lord, verse 2, and so it was, the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time. It was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Now, why did they lament after the Lord? It's a huge question, foundational to everything we're going to build on today. They lamented after the Lord for one reason and one reason only, because they're living in defeat. They're living in defeat. And they live that way for 20 years. Hey, listen, can I just tell you, some of you here today, you're living in defeat. You, you, you're, you've gone through a situation, you've gone through a circumstance, and you haven't responded to it in a biblical way. And as a consequence, as a result, you're suffering defeat. And can I just tell you that I see people who, who suffer defeat and what they do is they live in it. It is the craziest thing to me. I, I, I've got six grandchildren. And, and from time to time, Brenda and I, we'll watch our grandchildren and there. And what I've noticed is some of my grandchildren, they'll, they'll, you know, have a poopy diaper and they just can't get out of it quick enough. And I totally sympathize with them. I'd be the same way. You know, if I, you know, I'd be like, get me out of this thing. But some of my grandkids, they just don't seem to care. They just sit right there, just, you know, glorying in. I mean, some of y'all, you know, you know, the kids are like finger painting with a, you know, whatever. Sorry for the graphic there, but it, it happens. All you moms are like, welcome to my world. And it's just a picture. Some people are just content to live in their discontent. They're miserable. They're defeated. I'll give you an example. And I could, I could paint a thousand different examples. One of the examples that comes to my mind, um, you know, we do a lot of counseling. Pastor for 20 years plus, I did tons of counseling. Most of my counseling is, is to, to married couples. 98% probably of our counseling is counseling married couples. Why? Because we're a couple of sinners and we're called to live as one. Uh, that's a tall order. And inevitably, when I counsel couples, I'll take them to Genesis chapter 2, 18 through 25, and, uh, and just rich, target-rich environment right there in those scriptures and just going through. Because what I've come to find out is verses 24 and 25 is what most married couples butcher in their lives. Uh, basically, Genesis 2, 18 through 25, is the creation of, uh, you know, Adam's there, and he's all fat, dumb, and happy, and God brings him a wife. He doesn't realize he has a need for, his for a wife, but then God makes him aware he's got this need, brings him a wife, and it goes through about how God is making them to be one. And, uh, and so, to, to, to send the, the, the point home, you know, God creates Eve out of Adam's rib. I mean, he could have created her out of thin air, like he created, you know, the stars and, and all. He could have created her out of the dirt, like he created Adam. 
but no, he chose the creator out of Adam's rib. Why? Because he wants Adam to realize, hey, this is, this, you're one. I, I, I've designed you to be one. And everything in the world is going to try and pull you apart, but I want you to be one. And so Adam gets the, he gets the memo. He's like, oh, this is now bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she's taken out of man. And so then when you get to verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, to be united to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then verse 25 says, And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. <coughs> Choke on my cough drop. That's ironic. So, um, <coughs> so they... Um, I'm painting this picture for couples that are in crisis. And, and, and the idea that I try and, and point out to them is, look, this whole idea about becoming one flesh, it doesn't just magically happen. And, and, and you are one flesh. God's created you to be one, but all the forces in the world want to pull you apart. And so here's how that dynamic works, is that when you get married and you decide, uh, you know, hey, let's get married. What I like to describe marriage is as a little boat that you get in. You get into the marriage boat, and some, several of you already heard this illustration, but it's proven a point, so stick with me. So you, you get in the marriage bo- boat, and you just don't get in the boat. You know, there's, some, there's some things that are required. You know, for, for one thing, you actually have to leave the dock of life, which is family, friends, everybody else. A man shall leave his father and mother, and be united to his wife. So basically, you've got to leave, and you got to cleave. So you get off the, the dock, you get into the boat, you got to untie from the dock, you got to push out from the dock, you and your spouse. And in getting into this boat that you're going to spend a lifelong journey, you have to bring provisions. So the provisions you bring is, husbands, everything God's created you to be, this is what you bring into this journey. Wives, you bring your provisions into the journey, and we are to survive with the free exchange of those provisions that we have. One for another. And so, metaphorically speaking, you know, the guys bring the water, the wives bring the food. You can't live independently without sharing and partaking of both the provisions that you have. This is the idea of marriage. And inevitably what happens is that when you get married and you get in the boat and you start sailing out and, you know, it's, 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 this is us, man. We're one flesh till death do us part. And then pretty soon you're like, one of us needs to die because I, I am done with the boat right here, Right? Show of hands, how many of you are married? Okay, now you're always hesitant about putting your hand up, right? Because you're afraid I'm going to ask you the next question. Okay, I won't ask you to raise your hands, but guaranteed. I've been married almost 30 years. When you get in the boat and you have all these dreams and all these aspirations and all these imaginations, how this thing's going to go, and, and then what happens is you, you face real life. And you, you inevitably start struggling with different thoughts and, and ideas and, and feelings, and maybe you'll never act on them. Tragically, many do. And the thoughts, feelings, the, 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 the prevailing force at work is get me out of this boat. I want to be in that boat. I want to go back to the dock. I'll go swimming at this point. I don't care. The basic problem is this boat, and I want out. And so what do you do at that point? Well, very few people just jump out at that point. What happens is most people, they take all the provisions, they're right here, and they're sitting on the rail with one foot in and one foot out. Because they don't really want to be in the boat, but they don't like the alternative either, so they'll just sit up on the rail, and my provisions stay with me because I don't know which way I'm going to go. Or at the very least, eh, I know I'm not going anywhere, but I don't want to be in the boat and my provisions are staying with me. So the other person, again, doesn't have to be a rocket scientist. They're there, and they go, wait a minute. This guy's got one foot in, one foot out. And, and, and everything that he's supposed to be giving to me, or everything that she's supposed to be giving to me, whoever took the position first, they, they're not sharing. So what do they do? Well, they jump up on the opposite rail, one foot in, one foot out. They hold all the provisions here. And so where can the boat go? Where's the marriage go when you got two people in the relationship like that? And the answer is, it goes in circles. It's it just, you get tossed around by the wind and the wave and life has its way with you. Why? Because you're miserably in a situation where you're living in defeat. And I see people in my office who have been in marriages like that for decades. Decades. 
Now that's just one of a thousand examples that I could paint for you, but what we have here is the Israelites for 20 years living in defeat. Let me ask you, are you living in defeat today? Are you, in, are you in a place where you go, man, that resonates with me, man. I'm in that marriage. I'm living defeated. Or maybe it's some other scenario, some other situation completely and entirely. But you say, you know what? My problem is I'm living a defeated life. Absolutely, completely defeated. This is what happens to the Israelites here. You know, back in chapter 4, we see them go through that defeat, don't we? They're, they're there, they're, they're, they're going to fight the Philistines. And they're next to a place called Ebenezer. And this is going to factor into our lesson today towards the end, and it's going to be very important. But ironically, here's what Ebenezer means. Ebenezer means the stone of help. And, and it derives its name from a time and a place where God met his people and he helped them. They were in a situation, and God met them there, and he helped them there. And so now they're beside that place again. They're beside the stone of help, and they need God's help. Because, hey, we're facing the Philistines. we got this big, bad enemy, and now we, we need your help, God. And, and we're all, you know, we're here, and, 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 and we got to face this thing. And what happened is... Yes, that place was called Ebenezer. Yes, it was called Ebenezer because that was the stone of help, a time when God had helped them before. But they, by the time chapter 4 comes along, have long since stopped looking to God, their stone of help. They're no longer looking to God as their stone of help. Now, the Israelites, they had lots of different names for God. Uh, one of the names, you know, they, they, they called him the stone of help, or they called him uh, El Shaddai, God Almighty. Uh, or they called him El Elyon, the God Most High, which spoke of a God of strength, of sovereignty, of supremacy. Um, they, they, they talked about God, and one of the names for him was, was Yahweh Nisi. And, and this name referred to the Lord my banner. That's what that means. And it, and it stresses that God is our rallying point. He's our means of victory. He's the one who fights for his people. Another name they had for God was Jehovah Jireh, the God who provides. And so the Israelites, they had all of these different names for God. And, and what happened was, they had somewhere along the point, somewhere along the line, they stopped looking to God as El Shaddai, God Almighty, El Elyon, God Most High, etc., etc. What they, what they did was, they started looking at the nations around them, and they saw that they had different gods, and they saw that they had different idols. And so basically what the Israelites did is they said, you know what, another god couldn't hurt. So I can have my god, and I can add another god to it. And so they began mixing their worship with pagan gods and idols of these other nations. And so when they wanted good crops and, and financial success, rather than looking to Jehovah Jireh, the god who provides, they started looking and sacrificing to Baal. Now, Baal was the son of Dagon, ironically, the, who the Philistines worshipped. Um, and this is, you know, that, what they believed. And so they worshipped Baal, who was the god of weather and the god of grain. Rather than worshipping the god who created the weather and the god who created the grain, they thought, well, we'll just add another god to our, our cadre of, of gods that we worship. And so, you know, we'll worship the true and living god, but we'll worship Baal as well. When they wanted to get their freak on, they'd worship, you know, Ashtoreth, the goddess of love and sex. They're like, oh, there, there you go. You know, again, rather than trusting God who, who made you, physiologically speaking, knows how everything works and put together and puts a system in place that is honoring to him and that is going to be best for you, they said, no, you know what, we, you know, we think we can add this goddess to our life and, and we can improve, you know, what, what we've got here. So they tried to add all these gods and idols to what they were doing. And they, they just, uh, we've got God and we've got all these other ones. And, and so, and God, by the way, now here we are and we're next to, you know, this stone of help. This place where he helped us before. You know, here Ebenezer and this, you know, this is, the, and we got the Philistines coming. And uh, hey, we could really use a little help right now, God. How about it? God's like, nope, ain't going to work that way. Not for me. Not for you. I, I met you there at that stone of help before. 
when you were looking to me, the true and the living God, and, and you, you were following me and me alone. But you, you want to add a bunch of other gods to the mix, then uh, I'm out. You can face this battle all on your own. And so what do they do? They do face the battle all on their own. They're defeated. The ark is captured. And then the Philistines, having defeated them in battle, they went and oppressed their victory. And so they started to, they conquered, you know, the, they took Shiloh. Uh, they, they went on to, to conquer the cities uh, from Ekron to Gath. By the way, now, when we read that the Philistines have, have returned the, the ark to them, uh, the reason that they, they took the ark up to Kirjath-Jerim instead of going back to Shiloh is because they don't own Shiloh anymore. The enemy's taken it. And so they're living total, utter, complete defeat. And so the people lamented, but they, they didn't repent. They wasn't repented. You know, they lamented, they didn't repent. And, uh, and so this is their situation here. Hey, let's just move this thing around. Let's just get rid of this thing. And they live that way for 20 years. What's the answer? What's their hope? Get back in the boat. That's the hope. I mean, it's, it's the answer. You know, you're living in a marriage and you're like, I'm living in defeat and it's been this way for, for decades Hey, what I tell marriage couples in that it, somebody's got to get in the boat, man. This is the answer. You got to get in the boat. You got to repent and you got to get in the boat. Now, this is exactly what Samuel tells these Israelites, by the way. And what we're going to go through now for the rest of this chapter is a prescription for repentance. Okay? And this is super important for you. Some of you are living in defeat today. And so what I want to encourage you in is pay really close attention because what follows is a prescription of repentance and it's a repentance that brings restoration in your life. And so, continuing in verse 3, we leave off, man, the Israelites lamented after the Lord. In verse 3, then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel. Now, Samuel's about 30 years old at this point. You'll recall the last time that, it, that he spoke up. He was a kid. Uh, one historian estimates he was about 10 years old the last time he was on the scene. Where was he when they went wayward? Well, he's a kid. He, I mean, he probably no doubt did what he could to talk to people, but they went bound and determined in the direction that they went. And so now Samuel speaks to all the house of Israel, saying, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts... Then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreths from among you and prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. Now, what I want you to take note here real quickly is that uh, Samuel equates what happens in the heart as being proven by their actions. He, he equates what happens in their heart by being proven all, uh, by their actions. And so what he says there is he says, um, if you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then, and then what he says is what the action should look like. It, it's not, you know, when he says, hey, return to the Lord with all your hearts, that's the first step you do. And then the next step you, you do is you put away the foreign gods, the asterisks from among you. And, and, and No, what he's saying is, look, if you put away these foreign gods, then these are the actions you're going to do. It, it's, it's exactly uh, what James said. I don't have the scripture to put up on the screen for you. But James talks about how, look, when you believe something and when you do something, when you've made a decision in your heart, it's, you know whether it's real or not by the actions that you, that, you, that you perpetuate. And so he says, what does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can faith save him? If a brother or sister is naked and in destitute of daily food, and, and one of you says to them, depart in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things which are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so what Samuel says here, and, and, and the very first step, the first point, you want to write it down, if you're taking notes, view the first step in the prescription of repentance, return to the Lord with all your heart. Return to the Lord. And if you return with all your heart, then it's going to take a very distinct look. It's going to, to, to look very distinctly with the, the steps that you take. Now, here's the really scary part about this. And, and I need you to, to pay attention to what I'm about to say because this is important. 
They're going through a lot of consequences. They're suffering a lot of things. They're lamenting because they're living a defeated life. And what Samuel says to them is, look, you've got to return to the Lord with all your heart. And, and the, the scary thing is that the Israelites were in the place right now that they didn't know that they needed to return because they didn't think they'd ever left. Samuel's telling them, look, here's your problem. You've got to return to the Lord. And they're like, what do you mean we've got to return to the Lord? I mean, they, they, they believed in God. They, they'd been going through the motions of worshiping God. I mean, they had offered him sacrifices and offerings and all. And they had a form of religion, but their hearts were far from him, see? And so when Samuel tells them, look, you got to return to the Lord with all your heart, for, for many of them, they're like, wait, what do you mean? I thought we were with him. And, and, and maybe, maybe it rings that way true for you. The Lord said this of his people through the prophet Isaiah. He said, the Lord says, these people come near me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is based on merely human rules that they have been taught. See, here's the deal. Many Christians struggle with this exact same thing today. There are churches across America that are filled with people like those described in 1 Samuel and those that Isaiah describes. In fact, we were doing a, a men's study yesterday, and uh, we're going through a book written by a guy named Patrick Morley, and he talks about cultural Christians. It, it's exactly what we're talking about here. And, and I'm going to quote Patrick Morley because he, he says it better than I ever could. He says, cultural Christianity means to pursue the God we want instead of the God who is. It is the tendency to be shallow in our understanding of God, wanting him to be more of a gentle grandfather type who spoils us and lets us have our own way. Cultural Christianity is sensing a need for God, but on our own terms. It's wanting the God that we have underlined in our Bibles without wanting the rest of him too. It is the God relative instead of the God absolute. And that's the way a lot of Christians live their lives. Basically, it's like this. It's like saying, you know what? Yeah, I like God. God, you know, uh, God, had, he's, he offers some, some stuff that I could use. You know, I need a little forgiveness, and, uh, and I need a little, you know, cleansing of my guilty conscience, and I need, you know, a little fire insurance. So, yeah, you know, God will work out for me. And what happens is a lot of Christians, see the Bible says that God created man in his own image and a lot of Christians, they get that reversed and they're, they're trying to create God in their image. And so what happens is we see the Lord as a welcome addition to our kingdom rather than coming to the place where we recognize, no, 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 it is all about the surrender and the, and the complete and total putting to death of our kingdom and the surrendering to his kingdom. It's about lordship. See, that's the issue. Listen, if, if you're living a life that is a cultural Christian perspective, God's my genie in the bottle, and he's here to grant me my three wishes. He's that grandfather that's going to give me what I want. Listen, the most loving thing God can do in your life is to let you hit something really hard. And he often does that. So, what Samuel says to these guys is, look, the, the first thing you got to do, you got you to repent, and the way that you repent, it's returning to the Lord with all your heart. Second thing he tells them, if you're taking notes, reject false god and idols. Reject false gods, false gods and idols. We've been talking about this a lot over the last several weeks, so, so I'm, I'm not going to really dig deeply here, um, because we've talked about this, but basically, here's what I would say to you. 20 years the ark, set, the ark sat at Kirith-Jerim. 20 years. And all that time, Israel was dominated by the Philistines. They were in complete defeat. They're living a life of defeat. 20 years. And listen, they were living in defeat, not because the Philistines were so much greater and more powerful than they are. That's not why they were living in defeat. That's not why they were dominated by the Philistines. They were dominated by the Philistines because they were in bondage to false gods and idols. Listen, listen to the way that um, Charles Spurgeon put it. He said, suffice it to say, he's talking about the Israelites here in this time in 1 Samuel chapter 7. He says, suffice it to say that, that the Balaam were the male gods and the Ashtoreth was the female 
and that the worship of these idols was filled with lewdness and filthiness and was obscene and degrading. In other words, the Israelites were filled with this lewdness, filthiness, just obscene and degrading behavior that they were doing in the worship of these false idols. No different than the person that calls himself a Christian and yet is caught up in a life of sexual sin. And this was rampant. It was going like crazy. And so Charles Spurgeon, he says, that this is what was going on. They're worshiping these gods. It's all about this, this lewdness, filthiness, obscene and degrading. He says, the people were thus in double bondage. The heavy yoke of the Philistines was upon them because the heavier burden of a false worship crushed out the life of their hearts. See, what happens is when we worship a false god, it always promises so much more and it regularly fails to deliver. It promises life and hope and it promises a shortcut, which is one of the biggest tricks of the enemy. We think, oh, I'm going to do this because I will get me happiness or whatever it is that I want that much quicker. But it ultimately crushes the life out of your hearts. And the result is that you're defeated and you go into bondage and you live a life of defeat. And some of you know exactly what I'm talking about because you're there right now. You bought it hook, line, and sinker. And so what Samuel's saying is, man, you've got to return to the Lord with all your heart. You've got to reject the false gods. You've got to reject the idols. And thirdly, here's what he says. He says you have to ready your heart for God and render service to Him alone. Again, listen to what, the way he puts it in verse 3. He says, Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to the Lord with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the asterisks from among you, and, here it is, prepare your hearts for the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you uh, from the hand of the Philistines. Now, I want you to notice how they prepare their hearts. This is very important. Verse 4 so the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtoreths and served the Lord only. Verse 5, And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. He says, Gather all the Lord to Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. Now, where they rallied together and what they did when they were there is, is the key to everything. Okay, where they rallied and what they did there is key. Where did they rally? They, 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 they gathered, they, met, they rallied in Mispen. All right, if you want to circle that, nearby, if you've got a place to write it, write this down, write Watchtower, because that, that's what that means. So they rallied together at the Watchtower, and what did they do there? They prayed to the Lord. Okay, so, so put that together, what's going on? Listen, they watched and they prayed. They watched and they prayed. What was it that Jesus said to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane? He said, watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. In fact, turn with me to Luke's Gospel, Luke 21. Pick it up in verse 34. Jesus speaking, he says this to his disciples. Luke 21, verse 34. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the cares of this life, and that day comes on you unexpectedly. For I will come as a snare on all of those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Verse 36. Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, here's, here's what's going down. Basically, if you back up to, to verse 5 and 6, you see the context of these comments that Jesus made. Verse 5, it says, Then as some spoke of the temple, how it was adorned with beautiful stones and donations... He said, these things which you see, the days will come in which not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. And so then he says this in verse 7. So they asked him, 
saying, Teacher, but when will these things be, and, and what will there be when these things are about to take place? And that's when he says, hey, listen, let me tell you what's going to go on. And he tells them about what's going to come, and then he, begins to, he concludes by saying, you need to take heed to yourselves. You need to watch and pray. Here's the deal. What's, what's happened is, these guys, these disciples, they're, they're looking, and what they're saying is, they're saying, look at the temple. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that beautiful? Look how ornate it is. And look at, look at everything. And Jesus is like saying, guys, it ain't about the temple. Not about your religion. It's not about, you know, gods or idols or anything. Not about that. It's about me. And it's about the work that I've come to do here. And if you're going to look at all this man-centered stuff, you're going to miss it. You're absolutely going to miss it. And so what does Jesus say again in verse 36? Watch therefore and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass to stand before the Son of Man. And he says prior to that, what are, what, what are people going to be weighed down by? Carousing, drunkenness, cares of this life. And he says, so because you're going to be overcome by those things, preoccupied by those things, and because I'm coming as a thief in the night, man, you better watch and pray. Man, listen, this is so critically important for us. We need to understand that, that man, this is an absolute requirement for us that we watch and pray. Verse 6, back in First Samuel. Samuel says, so they, they gathered together at Mizpah. They drew water and they poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted that day and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. See, they, the, the pouring out of water, it symbolizes an emptiness and a need. What they're doing is they're expressing the same heart as is uh, articulated in Lamentations 2, where it says, Arise, cry out in the night at the beginning of the watches. Pour out your heart like water before the face of the Lord. And not only did they do that, but they also fasted. Leonard Ravenhill said, A man who isn't hungry for God is full of himself. And, and so what we see here, we see every bit of prayerful confession demonstrated here in the Israelites and the things that they do. They're, in, they're engaged in watchful prayer. They're emptying and pouring themselves out before the Lord. They're fasting and they're confessing their sin. Listen, some of you need to get this today. Some of you are living a life of defeat and you gotta know that, listen, this is, this is what the Lord is, is telling you. You wanna be set free from all that? This is how you're set free from that. You have to decide who you're going to worship, and you've got to worship him only. And you need to know this, that if you make that decision and you go, okay, just like these Israelites, they made the decision. They're like, we, people changed by inspiration or desperation. We are desperate. We're convicted of our sin. We, we absolutely are, are, are going to seek the Lord and return with all of our heart, reject the gods and idols that we've done. We're going to ready our heart for God. We're going to render services to Him and, and all. And, and man, this is, we're going to be watchful in prayer as we gather together. We're going to do all of these things. And what happens when they do all this stuff? Get ready for the enemy to attack. That's what happens. That's the next step. You're going to do all these things. You have to get ready for the enemy to attack. Verse 7. Now, when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up. Hey, they're at the watchtower. They're praying. They're fasting. They're seeking the Lord. The Lord of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Listen, take this to the bank. If you commit your life to repentance. And my prayer and my hope is that several of you here today will be in the place where you recognize, I need to repent. Just exactly what happened to these Israelites, I get it, I have to repent. And I would say amen, you do. But listen, you need to understand that the moment you repent, you need to get ready for the attack. Take it to the bank, I guarantee you it's coming. A while ago, I... I was counseling a guy and he was into drugs and, and he was caught up 
drugs had him. Um, and uh, he repented, confessed his sin to the Lord. He received Christ. He, he, he was born again. It was radical. It was, it was the real deal. And, uh, and so, you know, as I do with everyone that I'm talking to and encouraging, I'm telling them, look, get ready. Look, the enemy's going to come against you. And, and so, and especially guys have been caught up in drugs and alcohol. What I tell them is, look, what you need to do is you can't go back to the neighborhood that you, that, that you used to run in. Move away. You know, lose everybody's number. If anybody, you know, gets a hold of you, you tell them, I'm dead to you. That, that guy died. I'm no, I don't live anymore. Don't call. Don't write. You need to cut all of that off. Well, I, so I, I, I do this with this guy. I tell him all this stuff. He calls me the next day. He's like, hey, PT, you'll never guess what happened. I said, nah, I don't know, I probably won't. What, what? He says, man, I, I went home. He goes, I had a guy call me. He goes, I haven't heard from this guy for years. Called me out of the blue. I wasn't even home. I was on my way home from talking to you. And the guy says, hey, man, you want to get high? I said, what'd you tell him? He said, I'm dead to you, man. Said, Good. I'm dead to you. See, the enemy, he's there. He is going to attack the moment you decide, I'm going to repent. I need to repent. I'm done living a life of defeat. You've got to know the enemy is going to come against you. He's going to attack you. Verse 8. And so the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Boy, have they changed, haven't they? Because what were they saying before, back in chapter 4, when the Philistines had, had beaten them in a minor skirmish? They're like, oh gosh, we're, they're getting the better of us. We've got to come against them. What are we going to do? Let's get the Ark of the Covenant. It will save us. They put all their hope in their religious trappings and in the Ark of the Covenant, but they didn't put their hope in the true and the living God. And man, what we see now here is they've had a complete change of heart. Now that it's no longer it will save us, they said to Samuel, don't cease to cry out to the Lord our God that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. Verse 9, And Samuel took a suckling lamb, and he offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And then Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. Now, Samuel took a suckling lamb. Let me tell you what a suckling lamb is. You probably already figured it out. It's a baby lamb that's still nursing. Now look, you don't need to be a, a, a PETA activist you know, extremists to be bothered by that. I mean, that right there, that, so what, what happened was Samuel took a little baby lamb, still nursing, innocent baby nursing lamb, he slit its throat, and he sacrificed it to the Lord as a burnt offering. We had a gal in the church this week, she, um, she had a little dog, and all of a sudden, they heard the coyotes in the backyard ripping her dog up. She heard the whole thing. Devastated her. She was sharing with me this morning in prayer. She said, you know, um, you know she's heartbroken about it. And, 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 and we can understand that. We can all, it just breaks our hearts when we think about that. And she said, you know, as I was in my anguish with this before the Lord, the Lord spoke to my heart and said, I want you to understand that that's how I feel when my children reject me and go to hell. She said it was as clear as a bell. She just heard that from the Lord and it just was, you know, huge to her. And what we got to see here as we read this is, is this is a picture of sin. It's the price that Jesus paid for sin. Listen again, the Isaiah, Isaiah the prophet said, All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed, and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Here it is. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. Listen, the prescription for our repentance that brings restoration Man, we got to understand that, that if, if we're living a life of defeat because we have rejected the Lord, because we've been disobedient to the Lord, listen, guys, we need to return to the Lord. We need to reject false gods and idols. We need to ready our hearts for God, and we need to render service to Him. And how do you do that? Man, listen, you rally together, and you be watchful in prayer. And yes, you need to get ready for the attack of the enemy because it's coming. Then what happens? Well, then we receive restoration. 
We receive it. Verse 10. Now as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to battle against Israel. But the Lord thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. Listen, they worshipped Baal, the God of weather, the God of thunder. But when they worship the true and living God, the true God of weather shows up. The true God of thunder shows up. God thunders. What did they do? They prayed. They just prayed to seek the Lord. And verse 11, the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and they pursued the Philistines and they drove them back as far as below Beth Car. Get this picture. They're defeated. They're overwhelmed. They cry out to the Lord in repentance. God shows up. And then what do they do? They join God in what he's doing. God shows up and says, you're defeated. You're overwhelmed. Where is he? I'm taking him out. Right? I mean, it's like, you know, you as a dad, some, somebody, you know, does something to your daughter. You're like, where is he? He's dead. Right? And this is what God says. He's, you, you, and, and how does this happen? They prayed. They watched. They prayed. They didn't have to battle the Philistines in their own strength. You don't have to battle. You're being overwhelmed in your own strength. The victory is the Lord's. You just join in him. It's like, yeah, go get him, God. Verse 12, and then Samuel took a stone and he set it up between Mizpah and Shen. And he called its name Ebenezer, saying, thus far the Lord has helped us. We'll come back to that. We'll close on that. But verse 13, so the Philistines were subdued. They did not come into the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And then the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines, and also there was peace between them, between Israel and the Amorites. Verse 15, And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all those places, but he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. There he judged Israel, and there he built an altar to the Lord. Three points as I close. The Philistines were subdued. The Philistines were subdued. God took care of it. Secondly, their cities were restored to Israel. You're living a life of defeat today because of sin. If you repent, God will restore the the years that the locust has eaten in your life. You've lost things. God will restore that which is lost. It comes through repentance. It comes through prayer. It comes through putting him first and putting him alone and casting out the idols and the, and the, the false gods in your life. And here's the third thing, and I close on this. Samuel erects a new stone of Ebenezer. Remember where this all started for them? Back in chapter 4, they're, they're alongside a place called Ebenezer. Stone of help. And there at that place of Ebenezer, the stone of help, man, and, and it's called that because God helped them at one time in their past, but not when they're facing the Philistines back in chapter 4. Why? Because God says, man, you're all caught up with all kinds of idols and stuff. I'm not, I can't help you. can't help you in that situation. You want to worship me and your gods and idols? I'm not going to help. But here now, God helps. They're repentant, they're restored, and God helps. So we close with this question. Do you need God's help? Do you need God's help today? Are you at a place where you're living in defeat? Do you need God's help? It comes through a complete surrender to Him.